Hi everyone, it's Damon Klotz, host of the Culture First podcast. This bonus episode of the podcast you're about to listen to is part of our Working Through It series, a seven-part multimedia experience from the team here at Culture Amp. So yes, this is from part seven, but if this is your first time listening to the podcast, then you'll be pleased to know that there's plenty of content for you to catch up on. Head to culturefirst.com slash working through it to find the previous 12 episodes from the first six parts. And if that's not enough content for you, then we also have our original Culture First podcast episodes, where I sat down with people like DeRay McKesson, Esther Perel, Simon Sinek, and Minda Hartz, just to name a few. You can find those episodes at culturefirstpodcast.com or wherever you're listening to this one. All right, let's get started. Hi, I'm Lars Schmidt. I'm the founder of Amplify. You know, I'm working through it by trying to keep perspective, and I think I do that largely by, uh, you know, appreciating the time that this is giving me to spend with my family. Culture first. 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 Culture So let me address something from the start. Technically, we are at part seven of this seven-part series. So it's easy to think that we've made it all the way to the end. But in my opinion, this still feels like the beginning. Every day we're being faced with new obstacles. Some days, these obstacles will feel like roadblocks. Other days, they might feel more like opportunities to embrace a brand new approach. In order to embrace this new future... I wanted to spend part seven focusing on everything we've had to work through so far and discuss how can we integrate and embrace the positive changes that we've been experiencing. In my final wrap-up episode, I'm going to be reflecting on the entire series. But for this episode, I wanted to really focus on how to embrace this new future of work. So on this episode of the Culture First podcast, I've brought in one of the most respected people in the HR industry to talk about how to first embrace and then integrate all of these changes that we've been working through. My hope is that by the end of this conversation, we can collectively dream of a more equitable employee experience and be ready to do the work to make that dream a reality. My guest today is Lars Schmidt. Lars is a dad, entrepreneur, writer, speaker, fellow podcaster, connector, tech nerd, and he spends his time working on projects that accelerate the spread of modern HR and recruiting. So for his day job, he's the founder of Amplify, but he's also the co-founder of HR Open Source. And if that rings a bell to you, it might be because his other co-founder, Ambrosia Vitesi, well, she was one of my earliest podcast guests, and we spoke about scaling culture. There's a lot to cover in this episode, so I don't want to spend any more time in this preamble. So let's get started in creating a better world of work, one conversation at a time. All right, so today I'm speaking with one of my good friends in the industry, Lars Schmidt, and this is an interview that I've been wanting to have for a long time uh, for so many different reasons. But first, I just wanted to say, Lars, welcome to the Culture First podcast. Yeah, Damon, thanks for having me. I know we've been talking about this for a while, so it's great to uh, finally be recording. 
So my favorite question to ask, one that I try to ask all of my guests, because I think it takes us back to remembering that we're much more than just a title or the image that the world sees of us. And that question that gets to the heart of that is, how do you describe what you do to a 10-year-old who comes up to you and says, excuse me, Lars, what do you do for work? Oh, boy. Uh, You know, I would probably say uh, I help companies build teams that allow their employees to thrive. I'd probably get a side eye from that. I don't know that he could look at me like, hey, that sounds really awesome. I I feel like I should be introducing like fire trucks or like something cool that a 10-year-old will get more excited by. I might put them to sleep with that answer. But uh, yeah, something along those lines. Uh, I I help companies operate better. How about that? That's not going to be an elevator pitch, by the way. So I've got some work to do before that becomes that. But that's the general message I'd convey. I think that's why I've always used 10 year olds because if it's like like a five year old's kind of just like they're like I, I don't really care even if they did ask the question and like a 13 year old is certainly in that sort of moody teenage years where yeah but like a 10 year old's kind of inquisitive and they're like I kind of like you know I want to see what that actually means but you've also got two young daughters so like what do they think their father does for work? I, you know, it's funny I don't think that they fully know I mean my daughters are four and six um uh, they, they know the, the funny, I, I'm laughing now because I'm, I'm just finishing up a book and was writing the, uh, acknowledgements and kind of referenced my daughters, uh, in the thanks acknowledgement section, um, primarily because, uh, they come in my office every day and they have been doing this for the last couple of months saying, daddy, how many more words do you have to write? <laughs> daddy, how so? I think maybe they think I'm an author now, which is kind of cool because they're always asking me about the book and, uh, you know. They'll be sadly disappointed when they realize it's a book about HR and the, you know, modern work practices, you know, it might not be as exciting for them, but, uh, yeah, I think right now they, uh, they, they kind of think that I'm, I'm an author and I'm, I'm kind of enjoying that. And daddy, how many more words you have to write is, um, sounds like a much better question for your kids to be asking than like, daddy, are we there yet? Are we there yet? But in some ways it's kind of the same question, right? It's a little bit, yeah, but it's uh, it's actually really cute because they, uh, you know, are you there yet? I've been in those car rides uh, many times, so you know that the the cuteness of that has has long gone. But uh, but they they've seen, but they both seem genuinely interested uh, in the book, and they they'll come in and see me writing, and they'll ask me to what I'm writing and what does it say and what does it mean, and it's uh, it's been it's been fun. I mean, this this whole situation that we're in obviously is you know, massively difficult on, on many, many levels. Um, and so the, for me that I, I always look for silver linings and I'm an optimist and just, uh, you know, the, the ability to be able to spend so much time, you know, I have the privilege to be able to work at home. Uh, and so being able to spend so much time with them and kind of have them be a part of this process, which, you know, normally they, they wouldn't really be, um, that's been pretty special. And then as part of my kind of check-in, I think it'd be um, remiss of me to not sort of say that we are also both podcast hosts and uh, yes. you have an, an incredible podcast, which I recommend to basically anyone who wants to learn about a company or about a people leader or about like modern HR practices, because, um, you know, to me, and I know you're, you know, we'll touch on employer branding a little bit. You've done a lot of work in that space. But when people are like, oh, how do I learn about a company? You know, I say, well, what's a company you want to learn about if you're thinking of applying for a job? And rather than look at the careers page, I've actually just said, go check if, if one of their people team has been on, on Lars' podcast because, like, that's one of the best insights. You'll get into the true understanding of that company, that culture, and the people leader there. So, I um, just want to give you a big shout out for that because I know it's um, an incredible series and you put a lot of work into it. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. But as a podcast host, one of the things we have to do is create containers and ask questions. So I'm wondering, is there a, b- a particular question if I was on your show that you'd want to ask me? 
You know, I think it's funny. Like the show has really uh, has evolved. Obviously, this year has been a big uh, a big shift from the kind of content that I originally expected. You know, having and or had already recorded, it was waiting to air, and obviously. Uh, the times that we're in are just not uh, aligned to that traditional content. Um, I love to hear about people's stories. I love to hear about people's backstories. So, if, you know, for and this this probably got my podcast to run a little bit long. I think I originally aimed for 30 minute episodes. I maybe made one 30 minute episode, right? Of like over 40. It just it was really hard because I'm so interested in the backstory. I love origin stories. I love to understand um, people's journeys. Uh, and so, for me, that's probably the most interesting thing from every podcast is like, why are you in that seat now? How did you get there? Like what, what choices did you make along the way that, that brought you to HR or in some cases, you know, executive leadership. I've, I've interviewed from CEOs as well and kind of learning what, what made them, uh, what kind of led them to that path. And, and it's fascinating because you, I end up learning so many things about individuals backgrounds that I would have never expected, right? Things that kind of came way out of left field that knowing, and some of these people I've known for a couple of years, and I felt like I knew them pretty well until I had them on the podcast and really dug into their origin story and, and learned so much. So to me, those are always interesting questions. I, I want to understand like what led somebody to the role that they're in uh, right now, why they chose this path. Um, you know, was it, was it a straight path? Was it a, you know, a, a meandering kind of jagged path, which oftentimes, especially in HR leadership roles today, it is. Um, and so for me, that those are some of the most fascinating questions. Which is a nice segue into my kind of next section, which is like, you know, for people who want to see behind the scenes of how I think about interviews, I always start with that, like going back to sort of like talking about childhood or explaining your work to a childhood and then getting a bit of the background story to set that foundation for an interview before we kind of get into the topic at heart. Because, yeah, I think origin stories are incredibly fascinating. And even um, I was reflecting on an episode I just put out in part six of this series we were talking about why it's important for your performance processes to not be so rigid where you can't allow your employees to learn things that are not related to what they need to do, you know, to do, to do their job right now. And, you know, that kind of actually brought up an origin story for me, which was that like I studied uh, film and TV for four years in high school. I like legitimately thought I wanted to be a film director and like wanted to just kind of be in like writing screenplays and editing. But yet like so much of like what I learned there is now played out through careers from being a like you know trainer for like running like L and D um, teams and programs from doing this podcast from thinking about digital marketing and stories so it's funny how like the things that we do early on in our career end up shaping so much of it even though at the time we don't necessarily know why that work is important yeah absolutely I mean looking back it's always uh, fascinating to see how things that you've done in your past actually had you positioned really well to be doing what you're doing right now even though at the time. You know that uh, looking forward, it's always harder to connect those dots. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, I totally understand. So I wanted to do um, just to set a little bit of context. You know, if you're a people leader listening, then you're probably quite familiar with with Lars and your work. But if you're if you're not, and you're just listening to this, um, and you're sort of hearing about Lars for the first time, you know, to do like the quicker summary ever. Like you you spent mo- most of your career working in in talent and HR roles and places like Ticketmaster and NPR. And scaled startups, but I want to go back to 2013, where kind of everything changed for you, and you decided to step out from working, you know, for someone else and working for yourself. And rather than say, kind of, you know, why you did that, I wanted to just go like specifically to a very particular moment, which was the Friday at the end of your first week running your own business, Amplify. Yeah, how did that feel? Oh man, it was uh, it was a mix of emotions. I mean, I left uh, I left NPR and started my own firm when my wife was pregnant with our first child. 
Um, I was working with SpaceX. Um, they needed, and I had to spend a lot of time in LA. I had uh, a second apartment in LA for that work. And it was, uh, it was so fast paced. Like, I, I mean, uh, SpaceX is, was fascinating to me. I'm a big space nerd myself. I grew up in Florida watching all the shuttles take off. I used to want to be an astronaut like every kid. Uh, and so for me, it was just, it was a dream way to start a new business. Um, it was an exciting time, but it was also hard. Like I was away from my wife. She, you know, she was pregnant. I was, I'm in a different apartment. You know, we used to live in LA, so I had a lot of roots there. So on the, it was just, it was a lot of dual feelings. Like it was cool to be back in LA cause I love that city. It was hard to be away from my wife. It was cool to be working for, you know, a fascinating company. Uh, you know, it, it was hard, you know, knowing that I had kind of left a job that I also loved at NPR to take a chance on something else. So it was, um, but it was exciting. It was exhilarating. It was, it was thrilling. Uh, it was, uh, emotional. It was really, there, there was a lot of emotions in that first week because I'm kind of like, I, I'm doing this. And I was never somebody who had lifelong aspirations of being an entrepreneur. Um, and so I kind of, you know, found my way to that path late in my career. And, um, and yeah, but it was, uh, it, it was exciting. And I kind of, I had the sense then that the timing was right. The move was right. Um, I definitely didn't think that I would necessarily still be doing that six and a half years later, but it's been great. And I've had the opportunity to kind of uh, reinvent what I do and and projects I get involved in and things like that along the way multiple times, you know, since that first week. So um, that freedom to be able to do that is something that uh, I didn't necessarily uh, do it for that reason, but in hindsight has been just completely um, liberating for me. And I think has been a big reason why I've been able to get involved in a lot of different projects like the podcast and, uh, other things, uh, since then. Starting your own, own business is one of the scariest things that you can do, especially with a, with a young family and, uh, you know, and the uncertainty that comes with it. But you also made a, you know, based on how much I know about you and looking back at your work, you made what I would assume were some pretty, I guess, important decisions early on about investing in a long game or an infinite game and building community is actually one of the sort of core tenets of growing your business. And that can be hard when you're like, you know, each week goes by and you need a paycheck and you're trying to like support your family. So I'd love to kind of know, like looking back, uh, why was it so important for you to heavily invest in community and play a long game when it comes to growing your business? Because when I think of the people who inspire me when it comes to building community in this space, and it's something that I've spent so much time in and so passionate about, but like this year you've sort of taken it to another level in terms of how much you've been bringing together people. Um, so yeah, I'd love to kind of notice like, you know, what was it about playing the long game and building community that was so important to you from the start? Yeah. I mean, I think when I, I look back to my career in particular, the role at NPR, I think was really um, forming for me in that sense, because I, you know, I was in a nonprofit, I had no budget, no resources, very little team. I was tasked with a massive you know, digital overhaul of, of the company. And, and I, you know, I knew we had to do a recruiting differently. That's where we, you know, we were one of the first companies to really kind of go all in on employer brand. Um, and so many people were generous with their time with me when I wanted to learn about that space, uh, within our industry, outside of our industry, I got so much from it. Uh, and so it was really kind of where I got a taste of open source, this idea that people were willing to send me their templates send me their toolkits, uh, you know, answer my questions. And I felt like I had to pay that back. And it started kind of at a micro level of me just saying, okay, we're, we're doing some pioneering stuff at NPR. I'll write about it. I'll share what we're doing and, you know, where we screwed up and what worked and what didn't work. And then that 
that kind of got traction. That's kind of how I got my start. Then I started speaking about some of those things and doing more writing. And then those things just kind of stacked on each other. But for me, I realized that, you know, I owed my own career to people that were willing to invest in me and, and share with me and collaborate with me. And so for me, it was, it was really kind of honoring their support of my own career by doing what I could to, to kind of give it back and to share back. And, and those things, it's, it's interesting. Like you talk about some things I've been getting involved in lately, they've all kind of stacked on top of each other, right? Where again, looking back, I can kind of see it at the time. I was like, I didn't have a vision of a thing like an HR open source or something else like that. I'm just like, I want to do what I can to help other people. And I was, I had a passion about trying to move the field of HR forward, right? I was lucky to work in a lot of progressive organizations. So I always viewed the field of HR as pretty progressive. Um, but I knew that I was also an anomaly that, you know, a lot of people had very different experiences when they interacted with HR. And so I was like, well, what can we do to kind of try to raise the collective capabilities at scale, you know, and add some speed to that shift from old school to new school. And so that, that kind of became a driving force, uh, throughout all the different projects I ended up getting back in. But really for me, it kind of started with, um, I was the beneficiary of people who had that approach for me. And, and I felt that I owed it to them and to my own mentors to kind of give back and, and do what I could do to help and, um, you know, hopefully share some of what I was learning and my screw ups and everything else that was happening, uh, you know, to, to try to help them in their own career. Yeah. And I think as, as people, uh, leaders or as aspiring people leaders or anyone in the HR function, it's, um, always, uh, maybe not surprised me, but I've always been, I guess, proud of the fact that they're willing to share and willing to open, open up. And, you know, I kind of, came from this from the opposite which was working in not very progressive places and like you know starting my HR career working in Australia and I worked in government departments and then you know then publicly traded companies and where there was a lot of structure and rigidity around some of that and for me as like a young HR professional growing up in Australia I was trying to reach out to people like yourself and other people at these companies that I'd heard of to like learn and I think you know what people like you have done is sort of bridge the gap between sort of the future of HR and what's happening out there and these people practices and the people who are like saying, surely there's a better way. And like, I don't have the resources or I don't have the budget or the inspiration or the chance to bring in a consultant, but like I, there's people I can learn from. And especially since moving out to the US, what I've seen is like, you know, we've been gathering people in the Coltrane community and like people come from these, these companies sometimes and they're like competitors or they've like just lost talent to like the other person yet they're on, on a panel sharing like their practices or like how they can get better. So I think that openness and willingness to like push forward, even though, to, you know, you might be competing for talent, I think is one of um, one of the things that I'm really proud of when I think about the sort of the human resource and the people communities around the world. Yeah. I mean, look, to me, I think open source and that kind of shifting away from silos to open practices and collaborating, that's one of the biggest catalysts for the evolution of the field, right? I mean, going back even five years, certainly 10 years, the function was incredibly siloed. Nobody shared every anything. Everybody looked at it as, you know, competitive advantages and, oh, these are my trade secrets. If I share them with you, then, you know, you might have a competitive edge. And, you know, it's bullshit. Like, I think that companies, modern, modern operators now realize that, like, we all get better together. It's not zero sum. You know, if I am able to raise my game and how I do this function or that function, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't or that it does, you know what I mean? And so I think that, I think the modern, modern mindsets and modern leaders, they get that, they embrace that. Um, we've seen it very clearly this year in 2020 with everything that's happened. There's been tremendous amounts of sharing and openness, especially in companies and industries that historically were pretty averse to that. 
now we're embracing it. And so I, to me, that's the future of the field. As we do more of that, it makes it easier for up and coming practitioners to find out like, hey, how are companies solving for X? Uh, you know, how are people overcoming the, the, you know, this issue with Y? Um, and now you can find that information where before, you know, you couldn't, or maybe you had to pay a membership subscription model to, you know, a body of knowledge or whatever mm. to be able to access that information. Now you need Google. Now you need your network. And if you have those things, you can solve almost anything. I'm going to go narrow on the people function and then kind of expand it out. So like, what is going to be the sort of the future, not even the future of work, what is the now of work? What are the things that we are going to be like, you know, sticking with after this pandemic? And why I wanted to kind of go sort of like deep on the people function first is because, you know, I've seen many people write about that, like, this is the year of HR. This is the year of the people operations team. When you think about how many like things that, that they've had to deal with globally from, you know, moving workforces to remote overnight to uh, talking about uh, anti-racism and what why companies, you know, should be practicing and learning about that. You know, HR has been at the center of most of the sort of core things that we're talking about globally as an industry this year. So, I'd love to kind of just learn a little bit more about what you've learned from people leaders as the people who have been at the heart of this. And then we're kind of going to go broad to, you know, if the future of work is here, what, what, what's going to stick around? So yeah. In terms yeah, of I just, mean, yeah, like, you know, redefining HR, one thing that um, you've had access to is just, you know, you've been interviewing some of the world's best people leaders. And I, I'd love to know, is there a consistent behavior or trait that you've seen from them, um, you know, from ev- everyone that, that you've learned from? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple that stand out, uh, and I think they're probably pretty essential ingredients uh, if you want to be an HR leader uh, in, in this environment, but really all environments. Um, the first is resiliency. Uh, and that's obviously been tested this year. You know, this is a really hard job. HR in general is a hard job. HR leadership roles, especially at the C-level, uh, CHROs, CPOs, et cetera, are exceptionally difficult positions. You know, you, you have to understand the business. Uh, you, you have to understand the, the marketing positioning. You have to understand the financials. Uh, you have to be able to influence uh, the C-suite and people who don't always want to be influenced and they don't, they're, you know, they may be locked into their ideas and they could be the wrong ideas and you have to convince them of that. Um, that's hugely difficult. And that now you're also dealing with, you know, the most volatile asset within a company, which is your people. And you're, you're overseeing all of those, uh, individuals, you're supporting them, you're inspiring them and you're seeing them at their best and their worst. And that's just the reality of the job. And so, it's a really, you need thick skin. You need to be able to practice self-care. You need some, uh, you know, uh, healthy practices of compartmentalization from time to time, you know, so that you can, you can kind of deal with the task at hand and perhaps deal with some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the feelings and the emotions of that situation at a later date when you can process things in a different way. Um, so that I think is, is a hugely important, uh, quality. I think curiosity is another, um, the world of HR is incredibly complex right now, and it's only becoming more so, uh, right? And so I think that as an HR executive in particular, you have to understand the business, the space, the industry, the the, the climate, the trends, uh, all of those things within the sector of the business and the vertical that you operate. You have to understand the macro trends in society and the economy and everything around that that may also impact the business. You have to understand the people trends uh, of, of, you know, what's happening and tools and technology. And it's just, it's incredibly complicated. If you don't have a bias towards learning, uh, then you're, you're just, you're going to find it really hard to keep up with the complexity of today's environment. 
And I think one other that, you know, it's probably going to be a, a couple things that I would put together would be, you know, this notion of we talk about empathy uh, a, a lot. And I would say empathy, I would couple it with, you know, authenticity uh, and realness. And what I mean by that is I think if you look at the the profile of a CHRO, um, even five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, it was uh, oftentimes fairly corporate, uh, you know, oftentimes um fairly sanitized, you know, not, not a lot of emotion, not really relatable for employees. Um, uh, and, and I think that that led to some of the kind of stigma of how people viewed the function of HR. I think if you look at modern, uh, operators today, they're very real. They're very authentic. Um, they're going to talk about their own struggles. Um, they're going to talk about challenges, whether it's, you know, mental health, fertility, you know, a, a variety of things that their employees are facing and they're going to be real about that. And I think it allows them to make a connection with their employees in ways that their predecessors never could. And I think in particular in the times we're in right now where we've got, you know, massive uh, once in a generation events that are occurring kind of simultaneously, how do you, how do you process that in a way that is real and kind of honors the experience of your employees who are all going through all of these things at their own individual level? Um, and that's a real skill set. That's not easy to do, um, but it's also something you can't really fake. Yeah, so so many leaders this year have like, you know, if anyone's showing up and saying I have all all the answers, then they're lying because yeah, you know, like not that many HR leaders were trained in public health policy, and you know, <laughs> right. we've all had to learn about that and understand like how uh, you know government decisions impacting you know how our employees are showing up. We all had to learn what it means to build a remote organization overnight for many people or how to talk about racism and white privilege in the workplace, like all these kind of things. I think what, we, what we're seeing right now is that there's a lot of conversations where, you know, people aren't experts on, but we need to be having those conversations. So if, if whether it's a CEO or a CPO, like if they're getting up there and saying, I have all the answers, then it's like, not only is it a huge missed opportunity for empathy and for being like really authentic, I'd, I'd argue that, that they're just lying because <laughs> yeah. so much of what we're going through is just, you know, first time things. Well, I mean, and I think if you, I mean, if you unpack some of those things, I mean, just taking, for example, you know, anti-racism efforts and and the conversation around that. I mean, the the 70% of the field of HR is white, right? So, you know, if we're really going to address systemic inequity as a function, we have to be able to have those conversations. And HR leaders, HR practitioners, they have to be educating themselves about like what is, uh, you know, white fragility, what is systemic inequity? You know, what is anti-racism? What are these things that are perpetuating just based on how the organization operates? And, and they will lead to biased outcomes, regardless of whether you personally view yourself as racist or not. So I think we, we have to confront that. We have to have those conversations. And I think that takes a level of uh, self-awareness uh, that, you know, it, again, when you talk about those modern profiles, I think is really important. And and people have to be able to look in the mirror and kind of look at their own role in perpetuating some of these systems. I think that that, that has to happen to be able to have, you know, a chance at actually changing them. And so again, it's when it comes to like the, the, the magnitude of the societal, um, you know, everything that's happening, particularly in 2020, that that's just another massive thing that I think HR executives need to be experiencing, you know, in this moment, if they're really going to lead their companies in a different direction. So in this working through it series, you know, we're at, we're at part seven and we've sort of been on this journey. And now what we're really trying to do is like integrate some of these learnings to learn how we can be resilient employees, teams, leaders as we move forward. So I kind of want to shift gear into the idea of 
the future of work is here and we're just needing to like sort of understand, you know, what are we going to be keeping? What needs to change? And I want to just throw out some different kind of scenarios and some questions to you in terms of just like, what do we even mean by the future of work? And, you know, one thing um, we touched on was, you know, you've been building a lot of community and crowdsourcing a lot of information for people. And one of the documents that you crowdsourced was this idea of, you know, what if we designed work from the ground up today? So when I say sort of the future of work is here and the fact that we can sort of redesign work and, you know, throw out existing paradigms, you know, what are some of your key learnings from that document and from what seems to be coming up from the community? Yeah. I mean, I think it's such a fascinating time when you look at it in in that way Uh, is obviously, you know, globally shifting to mostly remote in the span of a week, two weeks, three weeks in some cases, like we've never experienced a shift like that in business. I mean, that's massive. And, and you know, the remote that's happening right now, like, let's be real about this. This is an optimal remote. Like this is remote while I'm homeschooled teaching my, you know, kids in a two bedroom apartment in the city, uh, with massive amounts of anxiety and fear about what's going to happen and health and everything else. I mean, this is like, this is as suboptimal as you could possibly create a remote work environment, you know, Yet companies are, you know, they're 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 weathering this as best they can. I mean, I, I think that, and I think a lot for a lot of leaders, the resistance to remote and distributed work largely came from executives. And me, I've, you know, I've seen many, and I've I've had conversations with a lot of them that have talked about how their bias against remote came from their own practices. They were not effective working remotely, so they felt if I can't do this, certainly my employees can't do this. Well, guess what? Now you're doing it yeah, and you're figuring out how to make it work and other and your employees are figuring out how to make it work. So I, I think that, uh, you know, all remote is not the answer. All in office is not the answer. I think the answer is choice. Mm. I think if you talk about, you know, what what is the, the future of work? And I hope we can bury that term, you know, now as well, because we've been talking about it. I think to me, it, it's like it kicks the football down the field. Right. It's like, oh, we'll just that's the future of work. Like, no, like I like the way you frame it as saying the future is now because it is like, let's not view that as some, uh, you know, horizontal thing that we'll deal with at some other point. Like, let's seize this moment now and figure out, like, how do we reengineer some of the stuff that's not working? Uh, and so I think we'll see more. You know, I, what I like to see is, uh, you know, the companies are basically a model where they can provide choice to their employees because everybody is going through this differently, particularly as it relates to covid. Um, you know, some employees have underlying health conditions. Some employees have uh, uh, childcare, you know, and school concerns. Some have elderly parents. Some have, uh, you know, just anxiety around what's happening. And everybody, and some people are dying to get back in the office. They can't get there soon enough. And so we have to be mindful of trying to do our best to meet those employees where they want to be met. And so I think flexibility will be something that will be here to stay. I think employees have had this taste and it's not like pure remote or absolute remote. It's just the flexibility. Maybe I come in a couple of days, maybe I, I work, you know, different hours, you know, that work, that's what works better for me right now. Um, and so I think that, you know, we've always operated in a fairly rigid, you know, Monday through Friday, nine to five is if that exists for anybody anymore. But, you know, these kind of constructs of work that are, are legacy oriented. Uh, and I think that those will be starting to shift and we'll see some changes there. And I think that I expect, you know, when, whatever it is that we're on, whatever is the other side of this, um, those are practices that, uh, that I hope we retain. And I think we will. Yeah. And that choice piece is so important. Like so many, like, you know, culture of ourselves, we've been running uh, return to work surveys to better understand our employee experience. Cause you know, we've got offices in New York, San Francisco, London, Melbourne, and you know, each of these 
areas where we've had people have been significant hotspots of of yeah. COVID nineteen and um and of uh, as well as being significantly impacted by Black Lives Matter and um yeah so we've been running that but also our customers have been running a huge amount of return to work surveys to better understand like what are the choices that people need to make and. I think when you were kind of sharing the story around if I'm a leader and I can't do it, my team can't do it, like, you know, that is gotta, has got to go out the window as well as just like not letting people honestly say why they need to make this choice, whether it is, you know what, like, yeah, like I do have a young family and I want to spend more time with them and I don't want to sacrifice my career to also do that or I don't have underlying health conditions. And, you know, that they were conversations that people weren't comfortable having with their bosses. Yeah, Like I have an underlying health condition that's stopping me from, uh, working at the capacity that I know I can, but you expect me to be in the office from Monday to Friday. So that's just how we're going to keep working. Yeah. Well, I think the reality too is like it, it also has a disparate impact on employees at different stages of their career, mm. right? So, you know, you and I are a bit more established in our careers. You know, we 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 have a cadence. We have, uh, you know, we've been able to, you know, get some projects under our belt that have allowed us to kind of, uh, you know, prove ourselves and our, our capabilities. But for junior staff, you know, we, we did that by oftentimes for us, like being, being in an office, being on a stage, doing things like that, where you're, you're being able seen. to kind of share that work, you know, and live like one to one and one to many, mm. um, for junior employees, they don't have that, you know, it, that's a lot harder to establish entirely remote. So, so we have to find ways. I think we, we have to make sure that and this is the hard part of that HR right now. It's like, we have to make sure what we're building isn't leaving people behind. And that net of the different, uh, nuances of how we could be doing that are near infinite. You know, there's so many different things that we do. And so you, you can't, you can't have a perfect solution for everybody, but you need to try to be thinking about everybody and build programs that, um, you know, cater and are flexible to everybody as best you can. Um, and that, you know, that's the, that's, you know, one of the arts uh, in this for, I think HR teams is like, how do they, how do they build, you know, operational cadence and rhythms, um, that really kind of support, all employees, um, you know, as best they can. It's such a great point about like looking at the flexibility that your current systems need. And like an example of that is, um, you know, we just completed our performance uh, cycle at Coltramp. And one of the questions that was part of our self-reflection was, you know, in what way has, you know, what you've been working through or working from home or COVID-19 impacted your ability to actually, you know, reach your goals and targets? Because, you know, exactly to your point, an exec member might have a, uh, a study and a quiet spot and a screen and an ability to work with fast internet. A junior employee might be living in a share house with five roommates on a dodgy Wi-Fi connection where they're all trying to do calls at the same time. And, you know, like they have to negotiate when they can get access to some quiet time or, you know, they have to work at night because someone else is working during the day and like, you know, that's not an ideal work environment. So being able to make sure that you can say that, you know, uh, performance right now is hard based on an array of different circumstances and actually taking those into account. Yeah. Well, I think to your point of what you're doing is also recalibrating Mm. that, right? Like if you're, if you're not recalibrating your goals from January, like you are really letting your team down because it's just a very different world that we're in right now. And and I think you have to be mindful of that. Uh, So I think that's really important. One thing that I've been fascinated um, about for most of my uh, career is just like understanding uh, our relationship and meaning that we get from our work and, you know, how much is healthy, how much, you know, for some people it's a paycheck and that's it. They just go there and that's fine. You know, for others, it's deeply tied to their feelings of self-worth. And, you know, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. It's like it's entirely based on the individual. And one thing that I've been thinking about, about resetting our expectations around this year 
is I am wondering whether we've had to reset our, our expectations about the relationship between the employee and the employer because there's you know people who have deeply loved their work and loved their workplace and then found themselves furloughed or let go and a lot of their meaning and their identity is gone and yeah I'm just fascinated like do you do you think we're going to have a, a reset of expectations about how much we should be expecting from our workplaces? Yeah, I, I think we will. I think part of that is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, like lots of companies have had furloughs and layoffs and, you know, that sucks. Like I've been, I've been in that situation. Like it was devastating, you know, it, it, it's, it's it, when you find a lot of your identity through your work and your employer and your relationships, right? It's more than just the the job. It's the relationships you have at work. You spend so much time with those people and then you're, you know, kind of ripped out of that situation. And, and particularly now you're like ripped out and thrown out into a, recession in a global pandemic. Like that's, that's, that's brutal. It's a brutal human experience to, to kind of go through. Um, I think that they're all also people are, are, you know, because people are spending so much time at home, you know, people who are in roles with the privilege of being able to, you know, shelter at, at home, you know, then spending so much more time with their family. I think for a lot of people, it's also resetting their priorities a little bit. Uh, right. Of like, and, and I can speak to this for myself. I mean, being able to spend so much time with, you know, my, my wife and kids, it, 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 it shifts a bit of like what is really important. And, and, and I'm, I'm one of those weird people who's always loved my work. I've loved every job I've had. I love the industry that I'm in. I love the projects I get to work on. Like I'm a unicorn in that sense. I know that's not common. Most people don't feel that way about work. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm stoked that, uh, that I do feel that way. But I think that this also, for me, it's like, you know, it's easy to get caught up in all of that. It's easy to get caught up in, you know, the conference circuit and, the you know, the speaking and podcasting and kind of all the stuff that we do and, and at times kind of get blinded by that and lose sight of what's really important. And so I think that there's a bit of that introspection that a lot of employees, um, you know, are also kind of going through amongst all of the fear and anxiety and stress and just all the normal other, you know, things that are being felt in these times. Um, but yeah, I think that that is going to impact how people view work and they're going to realize that like, you know, companies loyalty is to the bottom line of the business. And in some cases, the sustainability of the business. And so they're going to have to make choices. That's going to be for most of them, how they make their decisions. Uh, and that's not in the employee's best interest. And so I think that you know, employees are going to have to be, as we kind of move through this, um, you know, there probably would be a bit more awareness around like, how do, how do I look out from my best interests as, as, uh, as a person, as a provider, as an employee, you know, whatever variable there might be, uh, in a more so than just kind of blind allegiance to a company that may not reciprocate, you know, those same feelings. I've got a random question coming up that was in no way something that I pre-wrote, but I just want to get like a, a yes or no answer from you because I'm just fascinated, especially with your um, take on like employer branding. They say that you should never meet your heroes. Should you work for your like dream company, your favorite brand? Yes or no? Yes. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. It's just when I think about the relationship with with work and how much meaning, and I think you and I fall into that category of the annoying people at at the barbecue when we used to have barbecues <laughs> of like just right. like love their work and want to talk about it. You're like, okay, we get it. But um, you know, for, for some I've people, been many of those barbecues. Yeah. <laughs> if if my wife is here right now, she'd probably be laughing because that's uh yeah I have, I have no problem talking about that. But yeah, you know, and for other people, it's just I think. If you have lost your job during this or if you've reset your expectations, you know, and especially when it comes to like well-being and like financial security, I think we're seeing a lot of those conversations. A lot of people um, have been sort of really 
giving their all like to work at these places and then found their meaning kind of go. And I think for me personally, it's been an interesting reset about what is important, how do I spend my time um, and trying to balance some of those things. But one thing that I know that you have um, really pushed the envelope on is bringing in subjects that we maybe haven't spoken about enough uh, when it comes to our experience at work. And I know through the, um, you know, the Working Through It podcast, I've been talking about topics like grief, mental health, emotions, dealing with uncertainty, white supremacy, mental health. And I've been having these conversations um, with doctors and psychologists and ex-Marines and DE&I leaders. And, you know, I share all of this because I also want to be progressive and push the envelope. And I'm not sure some people might have expected to be hearing from people like that or topics like this on a podcast about work. And, you know, I, I hope that's one of the things that, you know, we kind of keep from 2020 is that these things are more normal to talk about. But I do wonder... Are there subjects that we're still not talking about enough at work? I mean, yes, absolutely. I think that uh, all the things you mentioned, those being talked about openly at work are still very much in the minority, right? Uh, You know, grief, racism, sexism. uh, I mean, so many, like all of these, all these, you know, ills of society uh, are still often not coming into the workplace. We're not comfortable talking about those things openly. And that's part of the problem, right? I think the people feel that because uh, you know because they can't have those conversations, that they're 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 guarded, they're not willing to learn, or or they're not willing to really hear and understand people and their perspectives. And and I think that that is is a miss. It's not easy, you know. It's not easy to be able to have honest conversations about you know racism and 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 mental health and depression and grief and some of those things that uh, we all experience uh, but i think it is important for companies to try to find space to do that in, in a healthy way so that people feel comfortable showing up as they are uh right because that you know if they if they don't that you know Maybe some, and you know, we don't want to necessarily assume everybody wants to. Like some people just aren't comfortable talking about that at work, and nor should they feel any any you know uh, pressure to do so. But but some may want to. You know, some some may not have outlets outside of work, right? And, and so uh, you know, the ability, the, the idea that it's it's taboo to be able to talk about you know grief and loss and mental health and struggles, uh, and and not normalize those conversations, uh, I think keeps a stigma around, you know, especially for those things, you know, those kind of things, and it prevents people from talking about it, or in some cases, seeking help where they need to. So um, yeah, I'd love to see us be, as organizations and as leaders, be able to have more of those conversations. And I think a lot of that has to be role modeled from leadership, right? So I think when you're, when you're leaders, when you're CEO, when you're CHRO, when they're up there and they're talking about some of their own struggles, some of their own uncertainty, some of their own experiences as, you know, whatever profile they may have. Um, I think it, it kind of creates, um, permission is not the right word, but it just creates, creates an environment where I think more people are, are okay being vulnerable and open and real. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we're certainly starting to see more of that. I think we need to continue to see more of that because I think that, uh, you know, that, that still is not happening uh, at any kind of scale. Um, and, and there's a lot of people out there that are hurting. There's a lot of people out there that were hurting in January and February. I think that, you know, this, this, this moment that we're in in 2020 with everything we're talking about is just, uh, it, it's, it's just magnifying that for a lot of people. And, and they're going to, they're going to need those outlets. 
and you know for anyone who's listening and saying how do i take that first step i think what you said about modeling is so important so like even in the container of a team meeting when you like use a checking question like model that first and kind of say like i'm going to like ask this of others because i want to create um an environment where you'll feel comfortable but also i'm going to share first and it's not about going as deep as you can on the you know vulnerability scale it's just about showing that you're willing to model that behavior and that like it's okay and if some people want to you know do that it's fine but also it's not it's not a forced thing it's not like everyone has to go around the circle until you've shared something that's deeply <laughs> right. wrong with you right 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 yeah i mean that's the thing is like it's obviously delicate and and some people you have to respect where people where you're employees are coming from some are going to want to share they're going to want to be open some aren't ready um some that's just not their style uh and and they will never that's like you know nails in a chalkboard to do something like that and and you have to like respect where people want to be but at least provide the openness and i think by role modeling that behavior you're at least demonstrating that it's okay and you're willing to put yourself out there uh you know as well so that the for employees that do they can follow that lead and, and they won't feel weird in doing so so for the leaders listening who are kind of like have tried to work through so much already this year and then they're wanting to see, you know, what are some of these things that we're, we've been experimenting with? Because like you said, this really is an experiment that it's a remote work experiment. Like we haven't been set up and said we're all going to do this because it's a strategy. We're reacting to the environment. But I'd love to know maybe from your perspective, um, for anyone who's listening out there, what are some of the permanent changes that you hope will stick whenever whenever we're at the end of this? Yeah, I, I think flexibility and employee choice to me is the biggest, uh, right? And, and it goes deeper than remote work or distributed work. It, it's it's hours, it's schedules, it's expectations, it's travel, uh, it's all of those things. I think that if we can allow us uh, allow our companies to kind of customize a bit more, and I know that's hard, and people are running HR teams for a thousand person companies out there probably rolling their eyes like, great, how do I do that at, you know, tides of thousand? It's not easy. Like I'm not, I'm not, you know, under any illusion that it's easy, but I think the more choice, the more flexibility we can provide our employees, the better work experiences we're going to create for them, the better work experiences we can create for them, the better, you know, uh, ultimately society can be. I mean, it works a big part of what we do. And so uh, if we can alleviate some of the pressures and stresses there from having a highly structured uh, you know, kind of work construct, uh, I, I think, I think everybody benefits from that. So, you know, that I think is something that I think will change. I think to your last point, um, being able to talk more openly about mental health, I think mental health will, you know, will probably become what I would consider to be kind of table stakes, um, employee benefits, uh, as we move forward, because this is, uh, this is a traumatic time for a lot of employees. Uh, and so I think that that will be massive. And I, and I really truly hope that the, um, the heightened awareness around, uh, uh, you know, social inequity and, uh, and anti-racism and just this, these systems that we have in society, but also in our companies. Um, I, I hope that that stays at the forefront of our conversation because it's not, it's something that's going to take that sustained commitment and effort to undo a lot of these systems that are deeply ingrained into how we operate. And so really understanding how those operate, being conscious about making uh, decisions to kind of engineer them differently uh, and adopt, as you say. I mean, I applaud what Culture App has done around your um, anti-racist platforms. Uh, I thought that was fantastic to see a company kind of say specifically, we're going to be doing these specific things. Because again, I think that this is a moment in time where it's easy to write a check. Uh, it's easy to turn your avatar black for a day. Uh, you know, making a sustained long-term commitment to anti-racism uh, is so important, and and I hope that that is something that uh, you know isn't isn't a moment in time. It's something that kind of carries with us 
from you know this year, next year, and beyond. Throughout this year, we've also had to unlearn um, a bunch of existing behaviors and make temporary changes. Are you scared that there's some temporary changes that are really beneficial to us right now that we're just going to revert back to? And one that comes to mind for me is, you know, the idea of companies kind of reverting back to uh, culture being heavily tied to a physical place and too much of the containers and like the culture that they've created going back to just something that can only happen in an office. Yeah, I mean... I, uh, I, I always worry about that, right? Because I think that that is, you know, to me, kind of legacy thinking, and I always try to rail against any legacy thinking. Um, some companies will do that, and some leaders believe that still, and that's not going to change. And so I think that we will certainly see some of that and see some examples of that, but I think it's going to be a massive competitive disadvantage um, for the companies that insist on work, especially for work that can be done remote, right? It's been, you know, it, it's built that way. Not all jobs are built that way, obviously. Um, but if they are and you're still mandating somebody come into the office and not giving them any flexibility around when they do that and how they do that, uh, you know, if I'm an in-demand software engineer and I'm interviewing at your company, you're telling me that, and I'm interviewing at a dozen other companies that are telling me, hey, you tell us how you want to, I mean, that decision is pretty easy. So I think you're, the companies that believe that are, shooting themselves in the foot, um, you know, especially, you know, in, in today and tomorrow's world. So, yeah, I, I'd like to see that change too. And then I'm a big believer that, you know, I've worked in between HR and marketing and I think one of the ways I've always found it fascinating is I think we can learn so much from each other and I think the profession that came out of HR and marketing working closer together is employer branding and I know you spend a lot of time focusing on that. Um, I'm a big believer that, you know, your employer brand is everything that you've done for your employees in 2020. And like how you actually showed up, how quickly you made decisions, um, you know, whether you were putting your employees' safety and, and well wellness first, you know, whether there was choice. So from your perspective as, you know, one of the leading voices in employer branding, what, how do you anticipate companies trying to showcase their employer brand moving forward based on the, the decisions that they made this year? Yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, in 2020, uh, employer brand has really um, intersected in some interesting ways with CSR, you know, corporate social responsibility. I think it's not about... Nobody cares about your coffee. Nobody cares about your kombucha. Nobody cares about, you know, your office amenities because there was it at office. You know, they care about how you treated your employees during this time, as you mentioned, how you prioritize their well-being. I mean, even Glassdoor, for example, you can filter uh, Glassdoor reviews by COVID and just look specifically at how companies responded. And a lot of comp- a lot of job seekers are going to be doing that. They're going to want to know, like, how because I think it's a good window into the soul uh, of a company. Companies don't have souls, but you know what I mean? Like the, the idea of like, how do you operate? Like, what are your, what are your morals? What kind of integrity do you have as a business as it relates to your employees? And so, um, yeah, I think that, uh, this is something that companies will carry with them beyond 2020, how they acted in this moment. And I think in terms of, uh, you know, what employer branding messaging is today, it's like, how are you taking care of your employees? How are you taking care of your community? Uh, you know, how are you trying to be helpful as a business, whether it's, you know, whether you're in a position where you can offer, you know, free, uh, you know, give your product away to first responders or whatever it might be. There's different things that different companies can do, but like, what were you doing? How did you treat this? Um, how did your CEO communicate to the company and to the outside world? Right. Uh, you know, I think those things will matter. Uh, and there will obviously be a lasting digital footprint and record, uh, of how companies did respond, you know, in, in these moments. But I think employer brand had to pivot. It wasn't the things, you know, the idea of like selling the sizzle and like, look at these cool things. Like nobody cares about that right now. It's like, how are you taking care of your people? Uh, and that's, that's, you know, the first, second and third question. I think that most candidates will have, uh, even as we move through this. 
And then to tie all, all of this together, my final question kind of goes back to the start, which is, um, you know, you have two young daughters and I want to know, you know, what do you want the world and the world of work to look like for them when they grow up? Um, I want them to be, uh, have the equal opportunity and be valued as equal as any other employee. Um, I, I want them to have access to all the same jobs. I want them to be paid uh, as the same as their male counterparts. Uh, I want to be able to tell them you can be president one day and have examples to show them of women presidents in the United States. That's what I, that's what I hope for them. I, I want them, I, I want to see a world that is, uh, uh, even for them and all employees on every level. Um, and, and that's, uh, what I hope to work to create. And I'll certainly will be doing whatever I can to, uh, you know, to create that for them. Well, I think with people like yourself connecting the dots between all the people doing the work, you know, I do believe that a better world and a better world of work are very um, intrinsically linked because, you know, our workplaces have such a big impact on our experience and on the dent in the universe that we, we want to leave. So, um, Lars, I just want to say thank you for all of the work that you've done as well as just sharing all of these stories today. And I really hope as we kind of wrap up this Working Through It series that there's a lot of actionable takeaways here for people to be able to actually see that a lot of the things that we've had to work through over, you know, the past seven, eight, nine months is things that we can actually keep moving forward because I think the world can improve based on some of the things and the challenges that, that we've gone through. So thank you for sharing your stories with me today. Yeah, Damon, thanks for having me on. A big thank you to Lars Schmidt for joining me on the Culture First podcast today. Now, I really enjoyed my conversation with Lars and I've always turned to him because he's got his finger on the pulse about everything that's happening and he does an incredible job of curating this content and making sure that everyone has access to it. But what really fills my heart with joy is knowing that he's doing all of this to create better workplaces so that one day his daughters are going to have a better experience at work. So what's my final reflection on how to embrace this new future? We've all experienced a big reset personally and professionally. As we move forward, my hope is that we are incredibly intentional about our workplace cultures and how we all come together. For far too long, our experience at work has been heavily influenced by inertia. We've struggled to make the changes that will actually improve organizations, teams, and the people within them, because it's been easier to just continue to do things the way they are. Let's be honest though, 2020 has brought an incredible amount of pain and suffering for far too many people. But the optimist in me has turned to the idea of the obstacle is the way. And for me, that is how I've reframed some of my toughest personal and professional challenges. I truly, truly hope that this episode leaves you inspired about embracing this new future, a future where our personal and professional lives can coexist and that the conversations we're having inside of our workplaces are inclusive, psychologically safe, and lead to a culture of high engagement and high performance. So this wraps up episode 13 of the Working Through It series. I'm going to be back soon with our final wrap-up episode, where I look at everything that we've been working through, and also how I've been working through it during this time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please send it to a leader in your life who's doing their part to create a better world of work. And for the few of you who have yet to subscribe or leave a review, well, what are you waiting for? Until next time, I'm Damon Klotz, and this is the Culture First Podcast.